0: Welcome, friends. Welcome back to uh, the to Seminary Chapel. Uh, to, welcome to those joining us physically and digitally and spiritually. Uh, just uh, two things to bring to your attention before we dive right in. Uh, the first being uh, surveys went out last week to gauge interest in uh, uh, forming a, a worship planning team uh, for these chapels, uh, making this your, your laboratory where we can practice. Uh, Picking hymns, matching with scripture, uh, practice, writing prayers, uh, worship displays. Um, A handful of people have responded. If that's you, thank you very much. If that isn't you, uh, there's still time. Uh, Respond to that sometime this week, and I'll be getting back with y'all on that. And uh, a note, uh, if you're one of those who prefer the hard copy, uh, note that we are going to be juggling two hymnals today. Make sure you have those on hand. Um, anything else you all need to uh, bring to our attention before we begin? And let us prepare ourselves for everything God has in store for us with a, a deep breath in together and a deep breath out. Let's join together in prayer the words we found on the screens around you. Merciful God, You have warned us that the path of a disciple is the path to a cross. Yet even in our wounds and our weeping, we know there is a God who does right. Soften our hearts, even as you strengthen our resolve, that we may love what you love in the hearts of those who do harm. In the name of Jesus, who even now suffers with us, we pray. Amen. Our first hymn can be found on page 659 of Voices Together or on the walls around you. I invite you to stand in body or spirit as you feel led, and let's sing together. friends our scripture reading today comes from Jonah chapter 4
1: but this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry he prayed to the Lord and said "O Lord is not this what I said while I was still in my own country What that is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishment. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give him shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But then dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then God said, You are concerned about a bush for which you did not labor, and for which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
0: A large part of the ministry of a prophet is to live among those who need a prophetic voice. But more often than not, those who need to hear a prophetic voice are not the ones who are ready to hear it. To those of us called to prophetic ministry, which I believe is everyone in this room, this reality can be as invigorating as it is demoralizing. And so how do we hold on to our righteousness while we live alongside the unrighteous without becoming self-righteous in the process? To help us explore this question, I'd like to introduce you to a new friend, uh, a man named Anthony. Anthony Bewley was a second-generation preacher in what was then called the Methodist Episcopal Church. He was born down in Tennessee in 1804, and he served as a circuit rider for five years there in in parts of Virginia as part of the Holston Conference. He got married, settled down, quit preaching, and started a family in 1834. Anthony and his wife Jane had five children together, and the family moved down to Missouri, where he continued his hiatus from pastoral ministry until 1841. Now, some of y'all may not know this, but the 1840s were not an easy or a pretty time for the Methodist Church. You see, the Methodists had always been opposed to slavery. At least that's what our official doctrine said. Uh, But as you can imagine, deeper into the South, some rules were bent, some rules were ignored altogether. Sometimes, slave-owning was permitted because the local leadership saw nothing wrong with it. Some even thought God had ordained the institution in Scripture. Others, including the founding bishop of the Methodist Church, Francis Asbury, were known not to approve of slavery, but also not to preach those particular anti-slavery doctrines in the South, for fear that slave-owners might stop hearing preaching altogether and lose their souls or that Methodist preachers will no longer be permitted to preach to their slaves. Now, Whether these rules were bent out of hate or bent out of love, for the sake of convenience or for the sake of patience, the tension soon reached a boiling point and the Southern Conferences disaffiliated in 1844 to form the Methodist Episcopal Church South. All that to say. This was not an easy time to be a Methodist or a pastor, let alone a man with a family, especially in a state like Missouri. The Methodists in Missouri voted to disaffiliate and join the new pro-slavery Southern denomination, and his colleagues always considered Anthony Buley to be a little weak on the evils of slavery, But the the Tennessee boy decided to stay with the mother church, after which he was sent to minister, to preach, and to start churches for the northern anti-slavery denomination in places like Arkansas, North Texas, and Missouri, before finally being sent to start a mission in Fort Worth, Texas in 1858. We don't know how strongly Anthony preached anti-slavery doctrines during his travels in the South, but I figure if he was brave enough to preach anything down there as a minister from the Northern Church, he was probably brave enough to get away with what he felt he could get away with. Nevertheless, letters began to circulate and rumors began to spread that preachers like Anthony and maybe Anthony himself were traveling through Texas, poisoning wells and burning down homes in abolitionist zeal. It was 1858, after all. Bleeding Kansas and John Brown's massacres were national news. Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry would come in mere months. And somewhere up in heaven, my AP U.S. history teacher smiling on me for remembering that. It wasn't such a far-fetched idea that northern agitators might set about these dastardly deeds. Tensions got so hot that in 1860, Anthony decided that it was about time to take his family and move up north. Just like Jacob crossing into Esau's territory, Anthony traveled separately from his family for their safety and for his, but sadly, they were never reunited. Vigilante mobs were formed to hunt him and other supposed abolitionists down, and Anthony was captured in Missouri on September 3rd of that year. He was taken back to Fort Worth to stand trial, and on the way, he wrote a final letter to his family, which included the line, Even now, I know there is a God that doeth right." Anthony never got his trial. On September 13th, the same day he was handed over to the Fort Worth jail, a lynch mob broke him out and hung him on a tree. His body was allowed to hang there all night, and in the morning he was buried in a grave shallow enough for his knees to poke out of the ground when the wind was strong. His bones were later collected and hung in a Fort Worth warehouse store, much like you'd find a picture at a Cracker Barrel, and it's reported that children played with the bones in the streets for years to come. After his death, Northern Methodists stopped all activity in Texas. When we come across someone like Anthony Bewley, we're faced with a question. Why? Why did he do it? Especially with a family, especially when he knew what the likely outcome would be, why would he do something like that? Why go preach in the deep south when Lord knows there were plenty of churches north of the Mason-Dixon that needed a pastor? I can see at least two possibilities. Option one is that he felt called to fight evil and oppression, and he felt the burning of the Holy Spirit in his bones for righteousness and for liberation. Option one is that he did so because he loved God and he loved the the, 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 the oppressed, he loved the enslaved and the people that he loved the people that God loved the most, and he longed to see them set free. I wonder what you think of that option. Uh, can, any part, can, can you relate to any part of that? As people called to ministry in God's name? I don't ask rhetorical questions, so when I ask a question, you can feel free to answer. Uh, can you relate to any of that? Does that jive with any part of your calling, and your passion, your experience? in ministry or life as a follower of God? No spirit burning in your bones for the oppressed? Just quiet today. I'll assume that there is. I certainly think that the prophet Jonah could relate to this motivation. And he shows us the potential pitfalls of prophetic ministry. Jonah gets a rap for being a grumpy fella, but Jonah had a lot of love in his heart. Jonah loved his people. Jonah loved his people. Jonah loved his people, the oppressed, so much that when God called him, he ran the other way. Jonah couldn't bear the thought of God's mercy being extended to the, to the Ninevites, who had so brutally massacred and exiled and oppressed his people. Perhaps Jonah thought that God's attention and efforts were better spent binding up the wounds and the broken hearts of God's own covenant people. Perhaps Jonah thought God needed to pay more attention and be more generous with the faithful and the weak and the people that God had actually promised to love and to care for. There was more than than enough need for a prophet in Judah. So why waste one on the Ninevites? Am I the only one to have entertained similar thoughts in my own life? Or is some of that resonating with y'all? I'm getting old, friends. You gotta speak up. Yes? No? Don't leave me hanging. If we feel a call to seek justice, which I'm assuming everyone in this room Connected with Eastern Mennonite Seminary feels a call to seek justice. This is a temptation that we will face. Even for a pacifist, it doesn't take much to see yourself as God's sword, defending the weak and challenging evil. Think of what we're up against. There's evils of human trafficking. There's a, a climate crisis spiraling out of control. There's rampant consumerism. There's a garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean larger than Texas. There were companies getting record profits and stagnant wages, endless pipelines and pollution. There's an ever-growing, ever-grinding war machine with budgets in the trillions and a worldwide reach. Corporate-owned news agencies that stoke fear and mistrust between neighbors. Does any of that rattle you? It doesn't take much for us to see the people perpetuating these things as evil, just like Jonah saw the Ninevites as evil. And when we see these people as evil, we want them to be stopped. Just like Jonah wanted the Ninevites to be stopped. And when we want them to be stopped, we can take that dangerous next step and feel that they need to be stopped by any means necessary. And friends, when we find ourselves in that place, we run the risk of our zeal for God turning us into that mob that hung Anthony Bewley 165 years ago tomorrow. Lest we forget, even after Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh and preached his half-hearted message, even after he saw the repentance of everyone from Nineveh's king to Nineveh's cattle, Jonah still expected and even desired to see the city that in his mind embodied evil and violence destroyed by God's wrath. And when I think of all the injustice that plagues our lives in society, that desire is not far from, I don't think that desire is far from our hearts. Or am I the only sinner in the room? Luckily, there is a second possible explanation for why someone like Anthony Buehle ministered how and where and to whom he did. See, he could have gone south and preached to his southern audiences, not so much because he hated their evil, but because he loved them. I mean, after all, Anthony never lived in a state free of slavery. He was born in Tennessee. He lived and worked in the south for his entire life. His northern peers thought he was weak on slavery, and so I think it's entirely likely that he had some level of sympathy for the people that he encountered, or at least some honest love. When Anthony rode into a new town or stopped off at some home or settlement to rest or to preach, he probably saw himself in the people that he was preaching to. The same people that he preached to would kill him and in a few years' time join in a bloody civil war, but they were also his people. How could hate fill his heart when he saw himself in their eyes? How could he long for their destruction, either at his hand or at God's? He couldn't. The unrighteous fight against their enemies, but the righteous don't have enemies. They know that they only struggle with their siblings. Let's chew on that for a moment. Only the unrighteous fight against enemies. We struggle with siblings. It's a small shift. It could just be semantics, but I think it's a monumental shift and a necessary shift for those of us who are called to seek justice. Because we are called to love our enemies, to see them as our sisters and our brothers, not as obstacles to be overcome in God's name. If Christ did not come in the world to condemn it, it is not likely that we were sent to condemn it either. Friends, there is a God that doeth right. And that right is redemption, not destruction. Love does not destroy And if we, like our new friend Anthony, spend enough time living and working among the unrighteous and try to nurture that love in our hearts, we will inevitably come up short. Our inability to truly and wholly love those that we encounter reminds us that we too are unrighteous. And that reminds us that Christ still loved us enough to be lynched himself. And somewhere in that swirl of our righteous zeal and our unrighteous heart, somewhere in the swirl of coming to love the ones we're with, coming to love the ones that God loves, the oppressor and the oppressed alike, somewhere in that swirl we find the true kingdom of God alongside our sisters and our brothers with whom we struggle. And then we learn to love. And that love shows us that there is indeed a God that doeth right. And for the God that brings us together and teaches us to love one another, I say thanks be to God and amen. Now, I know that, well, I've heard that it's been a while since we've shared this Holy Meal together as a seminary community, and I know that we come from all sorts of backgrounds and traditions, but friends, this is the table where enemies become sisters and brothers, Because this is the table where we become flesh and blood with Christ and with one another. And we find it impossible to hate Christ. In this meal, as we offer up our thanksgiving to God, God imbues this bread and this cup with the very presence of Christ. And as we share it together, we receive all the peace, the power, and the love we need to do the hard work of loving ourselves and everyone else just like God loves us. Um, This table is small, but it extends north and south, east and west, all around the world where God's people gather together for prayer and for praise. And most importantly, this is not Eastern Mennonites' table, uh, and it's not Brett's table, It doesn't belong to any church or any creed. It belongs to God. And the only prerequisite for you sharing in this meal is that you have a hunger or a thirst in your soul and that you are okay sitting elbow to elbow with anyone and everyone else that God may call to this table as God's family. Knowing that We are not quite the family yet that God has called us to be. Uh, We begin this meal with a prayer of confession. You can find that uh, either on page 12 of the United Methodist Hymnal or on the screens around you. Let's uh, take another deep breath together. And let, let us pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, let's pray everyone together. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray, and free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Take a moment of silent reflection, friends, and open your heart and all that fills it to God. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, friends, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. I invite you to take a few moments to stand up to exchange signs of forgiveness, peace, reconciliation, and love with those in this room. Some dinner instructions before we begin this family meal of God's family, um, either in the book or on the screen, although I guess the, the bold and the non-bold is not as easy to see on the screen. Um, uh, this prayer is responsive, so I will leave the, the plain print and we'll read the bold print together. Um, there are some sung responses. Uh, those will come up. Um, uh, the, the the staff and the notes will will be there. If that helps you. And if you're like me, that the line and the dots don't really do much for you is open your heart to God. And, uh, you'll be singing. You'll be singing the responses in, uh, in no time, uh, before them, um, you're, you'll hear the, 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 first phrase played on, on the piano. And that'll, uh, that'll, that'll, get you in the right place. Um, after we, uh, pray the great Thanksgiving, we'll pray the Lord's prayer together. Um, and then as you feel led, uh, uh, move to the center aisle, form a line. You'll receive a, uh, a piece of bread and you'll be invited to dip it into the cup. Uh, can eat, uh, consume it there and then return to your seats by the outside aisles prayerfully. Um, only, only other thing is that um, I'll need a volunteer to help serve communion today. Uh, particularly if this is not something that happens in your tradition a lot, or even if it is and you've just never gotten a chance to help serve, uh, this is your opportunity. Um, is there anyone that, w- that would like to help serve communion with me today? Uh, you, you don't have to come up now. I just wanted to, to get the volunteer. I'll, 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 I'll call you up when it's time, but thank you. All right, friends. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is a right and a good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, eternal God, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us from the dust of the earth. You made us with your own hands. You made us for you and for one another. And when our love failed and we fled from you and from one another, your love for us remained steadfast. You called us back to you and to community and you welcomed us back with a loving heart and with open arms. And so with your people here on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. you and blessed is your son Jesus Christ. He came to us as one of our own. He came to us as a stranger and loved us. He pulled us back to you and to one another. He formed a new community of the righteous and the unrighteous, the welcomed and the outcast. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He ate with sinners and he reminded us all of our place in your family. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from the slavery of sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night which he gave himself up for us, Christ took bread, gave thanks to you, Lord, broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, Lord, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Mine, is risen, is risen, Pour out your Holy Spirit on all those gathered here All honor and glory is yours, eternal God, now and forever. And friends, with the confidence of beloved children of God, let us pray as Christ taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. uh, the cup is non-alcoholic, so there should be no impediments to uh, to joining in the feast. I'll invite those assisting me to come forward. And uh, I'll just uh, right here, and uh, all may, uh, none must. But if your spirit has a hunger or thirst, come and receive that which God has prepared for you. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Grant that we may go out in the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn this morning can be found on the United Methodist, in the United Methodist Hymnal on page 560, or I believe the words will be on the screen around you. Let's uh, stand in body or spirit as you're feeling led and comfortable, and and let's sing together.